This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Thursday, May 19th. I'm Julia Caulfield. And I'm Matt Hoish. In today's headlines, via Ferrata to join U.S. Forest Service trail system. The nitty-gritty of applying for Sunnyside. Mountain film town Reed tackles corruption and gang violence. And a mountain weather forecast. Telluride's Via Ferrata is transitioning into U.S. Forest Service management. We are proposing an action to adopt the Via Ferrata as part of the Forest Service trail system. And as part of that adoption, we would bring the infrastructure up to agency standards, improve parking and visitor information, and do the due diligence to ensure that we're not impacting any of the natural resources that are there and have this public dialogue about what is this going to look like when it becomes part of the Forest Service trail system. That's Megan Eno, Norwood District Ranger for the Forest Service. Since its inception in the mid-2000s, the Via Ferrata has existed on Forest Service land, but it's been managed and maintained primarily by the Telluride Mountain Club, with support from local guiding companies. Here's Heidi Lauterbach, director of the Mountain Club. We went to Mountain Trip, San Juan Outdoor Adventures, Telluride Mountain Guides, San Juan Mountain Guides, and Peak Mountain Guides, and we said, would you guys be willing to donate, build into your cost per person, a donation that will go back to the Via Ferrata Sustainability Fund at the end of the season? And everybody was really supportive and on board right away. So all those guide services donate $5 per guided person that goes across the route. And that fund is used to help with hardware upgrades, any sort of replacements we need. She adds physical maintenance is done by volunteers. Over the past years, visitation on the via has continually increased. And Eno says the Forest Service needs to take action. The Forest Service realized that the agency itself was going to have to make a decision to either remove the route because we can't manage it or to adopt it. According to Eno, the Forest Service has reached out to a number of governments and organizations to discuss taking over management for the trail. You know, the agency met with the town, they met with the county, they met with outfitters and guides and asked each individual in those conversations, you know, would you be willing to uh, take on responsibility for this route? Would you be able to uh, manage the route, bring it up to standard, and either do something like the URA Ice Park, where the Forest Service basically gave that portion of land to another government agency to manage? Or would some of the outfitters and guides be willing to operate it under a concessionaire permit? In each of those conversations, you know, those partners said, this isn't a great fit for us. So last week, the Forest Service, in coordination with the Mountain Club, hosted a community meeting to discuss transitioning the VIA into the Forest Service trail system. Eno notes when she hears concerns about the Forest Service taking control of the VIA, it's often focused on if the agency will cable the entire route. And the answer is no. If you've had the opportunity to enjoy the Via Ferrata, you'll realize that um, it is mostly a trail with a few cabled sections. So it's not going to look like some of these Via Ferratas that you might find in other parts of the country where it's cabled from end to end. Our intent is to largely keep the infrastructure exactly where it is. And what we will make the effort to do, likely replace the existing cabling so that we can have a signed and sealed engineering plan that says, yes, this meets our current agency standards. But she says there will be some additional improvements to the infrastructure. We're going to want to improve the access trail, uh, improve the parking. We can't make it much larger, but we can sign it better and improve the trail bridge that's existing. So those are actions that will come much later. And right now, 
we're really just talking about adopting the route, bringing it up to standard and improving those access trails. Eno adds the Forest Service will not require a guide to go on the Via Ferrata. During the meeting, members of the community shared their support for the transition. John Miller is the manager at Jagged Edge. He notes the shop is, quote, ground zero for questions about the Via Ferrata. We field at least, you know, one or two calls a day, pretty much all season long. We always have a running bet as to when the first uh, Via phone call was going to come in this year, and that was January 1st. And so it's, I just want to say I'm really excited about this is the direction that the Forest Service is looking to go. Um, it's not always been the case that that was the direction the Forest Service was looking at. And I'm really excited about maintaining it as a public access. The next step to bring the route into the trail system, Eno says the agency will need to complete a National Environmental Policy Act analysis. That means looking at what the environmental and social impacts of the VIA in the Forest Service will be. Eno hopes to get that process going as early as this summer. The public is encouraged to share comment and input on the Via Ferrata management through June 1st. Comments can be emailed to megan.eno, that's E-N-O, at usda.gov. The lottery for Telluride's latest affordable housing project is up and running. The Sunnyside Project, a collaboration between the town and San Miguel County, will consist of 30 units with a mix of housing types and sizes ranging from one to four bedrooms. The town is accepting lottery applications through noon on Tuesday, June 21st. The lottery will take place Thursday, June 30th. But some pieces of applying for the lottery can be a bit confusing. KOTO spoke with Melanie Wasserman, director of housing for the town of Telluride, about some of the details of applying. Claudia Garcia-Curcio provides Spanish interpretation. For starters, getting into what we're calling the nitty-gritty of applying for Sunnyside, can you just go over what paperwork is actually going to be required? What are the kind of forms that folks need to, to fill out and where can they find them? Para empezar hablando de Sunnyside, nos puedes, por favor, decir qué documentos se necesitan para llenar y para aplicar y dónde podemos encontrar estos documentos. So if someone were interested in applying for the Sunnyside Lottery, they would want to go to the Town of Telluride website, and on that website, they're going to look for the Telluride Housing Department page. On that page, there'll be an option for the Sunnyside Housing Project, and all the forms they need will be right there. The two main packets that they want to pay attention to are called the Resident Application and the Sunnyside Lottery Packet. So both of those packets need to be read through and completed to have an application accepted for the lottery. Entonces, si alguien está interesado en aplicar para la lotería de Sunnyside, necesitan ir a la cita de web del pueblo de Telluride. Y en esa web vas a buscar la página del Departamento de Vivienda de Telluride. En esa página va a haber una opción Para el proyecto de Sunnyside, todos los documentos que necesitan van a estar ahí. Lo más importante es los dos paquetes que están ahí. Uno es la lotería de Sunnyside y la aplicación de la residente. Necesita llenar y leer completamente esos paquetes para ser aceptado en la lotería. And I know this is a collaboration between the town and the county. Is there anything folks need to get from the regional housing authority or everything is available at the town's website? Sé que um, este proyecto fue una colaboración con el pueblo y el condado. ¿Se necesita algo de la autorización de vivienda o pueden encontrar toda la información en la cita de web del pueblo? 
Yeah, everything's available at the town's website. It is rental housing, so San Miguel Regional Housing Authority primarily deals with deed-restricted properties, not rental units. Sí, todos los documentos están ahí y todo lo que uno necesita va a estar ahí. La autorización vivienda se ocupa de las restricciones y estas van a ser viviendas para renta. And I know for the resident form, you're supposed to fill out one for each adult in the household, and that's kind of the general form that folks fill out for all the town-owned housing. If you're already in somewhere like Shandoka or Virginia Placer, do you have to refill out that form or can it already count? Uh, so entiendo que cada persona va a necesitar su aplicación para cada uno, pero entiendo que si una persona vive en Shandoka o Virginia Plaster, ¿todavía tiene que llenar esos, esos paquetes? Yeah, that's a really good question. We do want people to resubmit their applications. There's a few small changes in the application that we need people to go through and you know, check the right boxes and sign off on the right thing. Esa es una pregunta muy buena. Sí, es importante que personas llenen de vuelta la aplicación. Y sí, hay unos cambios pequeños en estas nuevas aplicaciones. So es importante que personas vayan y, y vean esos cambios y pongan lo que es importante para ellos. I do know one of the things that seems to be different is um, the requirement of tax documents to prove the income limits. And I guess I'm wondering, is that the only way that you're allowing folks to prove income limits? Or are there any other documents that you would accept? Un cambio que yo vi en, en la aplicación es los documentos que uno va a necesitar para las taxas. Y es, eh, estoy viendo que eso es prueba de cuánto uno gana. My short answer is that we need the tax documents. If there's some sort of extenuating circumstances, I think we'd want to talk to people on a one-on-one -on -one basis and figure it out with them to find out if there's something that they could substitute in place of the tax returns. Mi respuesta corta es, necesitamos esos documentos de, de taxas. Por algo, si unas personas no tienen esos documentos, nos podemos hablar con esas personas a, a uno a uno a ver qué documentos podemos aprobar para que ellos... Um, Pongan en su aplicación. And a bit of a confusing part of this application is the idea that people have to apply by household. So you have to decide all the folks that you would want to be living with and put them on the application. All the adults have to fill out those resident forms. Can you just go over how that household number translates into what units people are eligible for? I assume if you're a four-person household, you wouldn't be eligible, for instance, for a one-bedroom unit. I mean, what is the breakdown of eligibility for the lottery versus the household size. Algo que es un poquito confundido es la idea que cada persona va a aplicar para quién va a vivir ahí. Suponer so listas de personas que van a estar adultos que van a estar vivi viviendo en esas viviendas o apartamentos. Pero una pregunta, ¿nos puedes explicar cuántas personas pueden estar en una unidad sabiendo que es a lo mejor son cuatro personas y van a poder hacer para una recámara? ¿Nos puedes explicar poquito qué se necesita o cuántas personas pueden estar en un apartamento? Okay, so the household, people have to declare who is going to be living in their household ahead of time. And one of the forms in the lottery packet requires that that is declared in advance. If you're in the lottery and you win the lottery and you decide to change your household after the fact, we are, we're not going to allow it. So it is really important that when people are going into this process that they're really taking their time to think this through and, and make sure that their household is accurate and correct. The way that that translates into the units that they can 
apply for and accept is that we have unit minimum and maximum occupancy requirements. So the minimum occupancy requirement is basically one person per bedroom. The maximum is two people per bedroom. So sabiendo qué personas van a vivir en esos departamentos es importante antes de aplicar, suponiendo so esas listas es lo que necesitamos ver y saber. Por si algo usted gana la lotería y quiere cambiar cuántas personas van a vivir ahí, va a ser difícil cambiar eso y no podemos hacer esos cambios. Pero es muy importante durante este proceso que por favor las personas llenando esos paquetes y documentos que piensen muy bien cuántas personas van a vivir con ustedes porque cuando llenen eso no vas a poder cambiarlo. So, por favor, es importante que, los, que lo llenen bien y piensen bien quién va a vivir con ustedes. So, la manera que esto va a funcionar de unidad ¿Cuántas personas van a aplicar? Puede ser lo máximo y lo mínimo. So, lo mínimo es una persona cada recámara o cada cama. Uh, lo máximo va a ser dos personas en una recámara o en una cama. Okay. And when you're going into the lottery, do you have to specify we are applying for these types of units? Or do you just put this is how many are in our household? The lottery is going to happen, and if you're able to get a unit where you meet the requirements, you're good to go. So, entiendo, aplicando para lotería, uno tiene que decir la unidad que ellos quieren, diciendo, esas son las personas en, en mi vivienda o en mi casa. Yeah, so in the lottery packet, there is a form where people have to provide their unit preferences. Another one of the, I think, confusing pieces of this application process that's different from past lotteries is that people will only be allowed, or I should say households, will only be allowed to apply for two different unit sizes. In the past, in lotteries that we've had, people could mark every single unit. But because we're asking people to declare their household ahead of time, it's going to keep that from happening and make people have to sort of decide on their household constitution before the lottery drawing. So, en el paquete de lotería, um, ahí está la preferencia que las personas quieren de las unidades. Una parte muy importante y también algo que es diferente es que este año, esta aplicación, este paquete, estamos dando permiso que cada vivienda o cada persona que va a aplicar nada más tiene dos opciones de qué unidades pueden um, tener la opción de, de deseos. So, en el pasado, hemos dado permiso, dado personas que puedan poner todas las unidades en la lotería, pero este año uh, queremos que declaren cuántas personas van a vivir en la unidad para saber y no tener esos cambios. Melanie, is there anything else that you want to add that you think folks should know about the lottery? Melanie, ¿tienes otras cosas que las personas necesitan saber uh, en este proyecto, proceso? One thing that I think is important for people to know is that we're not having an exception process in this lottery. The most common exception that's requested during lottery processes is that people ask for a unit that's one size larger than what they qualify for. And there are others that folks ask for as well, but in this lottery, we're not offering an exception process. Algo importante que personas deben de saber, no vamos a tener excepciones en este proceso. En la lotería no vamos a dar excepciones. Son, um, a veces personas piden unidades que son más grandes de cuántas personas van a vivir en sus casas o en apartamento y no vamos a hacer esos cambios. La unidad que usted va a recibir es la que usted ap aplicó. No vamos a tener excepciones. 
Melanie Wasserman is the director of housing for the town of Telluride. Melanie, thanks so much for discussing some of the details of the Sunnyside Housing Lottery. Thank you, Matt. Melanie is la directora que está haciendo este proyecto. Muchas gracias, Melanie. For anyone interested in applying for the Sunnyside Lottery, the Wilkinson Public Library has a table with all the documents you need. You can also print documents there. So si personas quieren aplicar para el Sunnyside, la, en la biblioteca tenemos las aplicaciones y los paquetes ahí. Y Claudia o Dominique puede ayudarles a llenar eso, pero entienden que este proceso es un poquito largo y se toma tiempo. So paciencia y hacer citas con Claudia o Dominique. Muchas gracias. There will also be several presentations about the Sunnyside Lottery and opportunities for questions at the library over the next few weeks, including sessions in Spanish from 5 to 7 p.m. on June 9th and 5 to 7 p.m. on June 14th. Habrá varias presentaciones sobre la Lotería de Sunnyside y oportunidades para hacer preguntas en la biblioteca durante las próximas semanas, incluidas sesiones en español de 5 a 7 de la tarde el 9 de junio y de 5 a 7 de la tarde el 14 de junio. In 2013, Julian Rubenstein was a journalist living in New York City when he read about a shooting in his hometown of Denver. That really caught my eye because it was uh, the the alleged shooter was an anti-gang activist who'd shot someone at his own peace rally in a community that had been getting a lot of attention because of it, it had was uh, undergoing a really high-profile redevelopment of this famous site, Holly Square, which has a lot of history in Denver's civil rights movement and in this community, which is a historic Black community. And the shooting was really um, shocking because of uh, who had been involved, Terrence Roberts, former gang member himself. Curiosity sparked. Rubenstein flew home, moved in with his mom, and began reporting the story. Terrence was out on bond facing some serious charges, including attempted murder. And he agreed to talk to me. And really, that was the beginning of what made me recognize a lot of the complexity of the story and also how strong of a main uh, character there might be in this story. Rubenstein's reporting turned into a book, The Holly, Five Bullets, One Gun, and the Struggle to Save an American Neighborhood. That book, is now a documentary, premiering at Mountain Film this month. The book is Mountain Film's Town Read. At first, it was kind of a, uh, you know, a, a twist on a crime story because it was it was sort of a not exactly a whodunit, but a sort of a why done it. Like, we knew who the shooter was. Terrence didn't deny that he shot this guy. But the question was why. Rubenstein says in his reporting, it quickly became clear. Some of the answers lived in the neighborhood itself. He needed to know the history of the Holly and the players involved to understand the story. I did discover quite quickly, actually, how apparent it was that <clears throat> there was a clear connection from the just gang members in the streets of this neighborhood all the way to the top of the power structures of the state and of the city, including the police, including the mayor's office, including major developers and including powerful foundations. And they were all working on this redevelopment effort. At the same time, he says gang violence was exploding in the aftermath of the shooting. And what I see very clearly is active gang members being used in these programs who then are seemingly, you know, carrying out intimidation efforts, whether on behalf directly of people who they were working with or on their own. 
there's a lot of gray area in the movie, which is, I like it. I also, you know, turned over every stone I could. I got a lot of paperwork and a lot of information that I think paints a pretty clear picture of the challenges facing activists who try to come against programs and, and redevelopment efforts, as well as the misuse of informants, misconduct by informants, um, and frankly, the connection between gentrification and violence. Rubenstein points to programs spending millions of dollars in the community. He says, supposedly, aimed at eliminating crime. But yet what's happening is something different. And what they're doing is some of the people who do have a relationship with law enforcement, I was able to confirm and discover um, the reality that Terrence Roberts was attacked by gang members, some of whom were working for the police. And that's a pretty significant revelation, especially given that exactly that is what many Black activists have been saying is happening around the country. With that lens focused on one case, Rubenstein says it's Terrence Roberts that makes a compelling main character. Terrence Roberts, as a main character, is incredibly symbolic of so many things, but one of the other ways that he's so valuable for is that it's a miracle and his people who know him say it all the time that he's not dead or in prison he's one of the few who was deep deep inside of it went through all of the stuff he was in prison for 10 years got out knows all these things and was actually trying to do right is he a perfect person no does he have you know he has his own style but ultimately he was a whistleblower in a situation that needed a whistleblower but instead when he blew that whistle he was attacked by people working for the police the film The Holly will make its world premiere at Mountain Film on Friday, May 27th at 8 p.m. at the Sheridan Opera House. It will also play Sunday, May 29th at 9 p.m. at The Palm. Julian Rubinstein and Terrence Roberts will be in attendance. The book, The Holly, is Mountain Film's town read. A domestic cat in San Miguel County has tested positive for the plague. This is the first instance of the plague in domestic and wild animals in San Miguel County this summer. There have been no human cases to date. The infection occurred in Norwood. According to the county, no fleas were found during treatment, and the owners of the cat are monitoring for symptoms amongst all exposed people and animals. Plague has been present in Colorado since at least the 1940s and is most commonly spread in the summer months between rodents such as prairie dogs, squirrels, rats, and rabbits. Domestic animals can be infected with it when the infection spills over from rodent populations. It can be transmitted by bites of infected fleas, touching infected animals, or inhaling droplets from the cough of an infected person or animal. It's rare for humans to contract the plague, though last year a 10-year-old Coloradan died from complications of the disease. While there is no vaccine for plague, it can be treated successfully with antibiotics when caught early. Plague symptoms include swollen or tender lymph nodes, shortness of breath, pain in the abdomen or muscles, fever, chills, and fatigue. Some hiking in the Telluride area will look different this summer. With Chair 9 construction and the upcoming elk calving, several spots around the Telluride Ski Resort will be closed to public access for both the short and medium term. Our whole team over here loves recreating on these trails just as much as anyone, and we certainly wouldn't close them if we didn't have to. That's Patrick Latcham, Telski Vice President of Sales and Marketing. When it comes to routine closures, the Prospect Basin, including the Prospect Trail, Prospect Loop, 
Basin Trail and Meridian Trail, and the entire Prospect, Gold Hill, and Palmyra Basin areas will be closed to all access from May 20th through June 30th for the annual elk calving. But some trails will be off-limits the whole summer. Starting Monday, May 23rd, Sea Forever Trail, Wasatch Connection, and all the surrounding areas in the lift 6, 9, 14, and 15 areas will be closed to all access. Telski says that closure is in conjunction with the Lift 9 replacement and associated construction projects. The resort expects those closures to last all summer in order to maintain public safety. The restrictions will be in effect 24-7. Latcham acknowledges some of those summer-long closures are a tough pill to swallow. But I mean, if you were to go up there, there's just so much heavy machinery and traffic due to the construction at Chernine. It's not that solitude and experience you want while hiking anyways. And it's really just out of safety with that heavy equipment. There will also be intermittent closures of trails in the ski area throughout the summer due to construction, according to the resort. Telski says those closures will affect the Telluride Trail, Camel's Garden Trail, Short Loop, Prospect Trail, Prospect Loop, Basin Trail, Meridian Trail, and potentially others. The closures update contradicts information Latcham gave when he spoke to KOTO about summer impacts from the construction back in April. Then he said hiking operations should be normal this summer with minimal impacts. I think just getting everything up there and seeing what was going on and what we're going to be doing on a daily basis. And then the what I was more referring to as you know, these intermittent closures. And I, you know, I didn't realize that, you know, what was going to be closed from May 23rd through the, for the entire summer. You know, I'm excited about what we can keep open every day and all the work that's gone into planning and, and making sure we can do that. But, you know, apologies if I didn't reflect something accurately there. The resort plans to share updates on the Lift 9 replacement and trail closures via social media. The Telluride Transfer Warehouse is another step closer to its redesign. Earlier this week, the Colorado Historic Foundation approved the new warehouse design. The decision comes around the same time as the design approval by Telluride's Historic and Architectural Review Commission. The three-level warehouse design includes a basement, event spaces, and a roof deck, along with an open-air courtyard while leaving the iconic outer wall. There are still a few more levels of approval needed, but the Arts District hopes to start construction on the transfer warehouse in 2023, with the aim to be done by the end of 2024. Colorado is experiencing another uptick in coronavirus cases. As KOTO Scott Franz reports, the state's top disease expert says COVID hospitalizations could reach as many as 800 by mid-June. Epidemiologist Rachel Herlihy says the latest spike will not be nearly as bad as the Omicron wave last winter. Still, she says Coloradans at higher risk of the virus should be more vigilant. Consider wearing masks when you're going to be around other people, uh, especially indoor crowded environments. Um, also strategies like testing before or after gatherings. About 9% of virus tests are coming back positive this week in Colorado. Herlihy says the state's hospital system could see more stress and longer wait times because of the rising case numbers. Meanwhile, Colorado is preparing to offer booster shots for children ages 5 to 11. I'm Scott Franz. 
the National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for partly cloudy skies tonight with a low around 40 degrees. Winds could gust as high as 35 miles per hour. Friday, expect cloudy skies with a high in the mid-50s. There's a slight chance of rain and snow showers, and winds could gust as high as 35 miles per hour. Friday night should be mostly cloudy with a low around 30 degrees and a chance of rain and snow showers. Winds could gust as high as 35 miles per hour. Little to no snow accumulation is expected. Saturday calls for partly sunny skies with a high in the mid-40s and a 40% chance of snow showers. Some thunder is also possible, and winds could gust as high as 30 miles per hour. Saturday night, expect mostly cloudy skies with a low around freezing and a 20% chance of snow showers. Some thunder is also possible. This has been the news for Thursday, May 19th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. Did you know, if your child has yet to enter kindergarten and is attending a preschool or child care center in San Miguel County, you may be eligible for a tuition reduction. Hi, I'm Kathy with Strong Start, reminding you that in 2017, San Miguel County passed a mill levy to support and elevate early childhood education. This includes helping families cover the cost of child care tuition. We know that raising a family is expensive. If you are interested in applying for Strong Start's financial aid program, check out our website at strongstartstrongcommunity.org. The deadline to apply is Wednesday, June 1st, so please help us spread the word. Again, that's strongstartstrongcommunity.org to apply. Tell your friends. Thanks, Kodo. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at KOTO. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.